0: Good morning, everyone. Nothing like a little bit of technical trouble to keep everyone on their toes. Hopefully, we didn't lose too many of you in the process there. Well, most of you will have probably gathered by now that when I'm left to my own devices to uh, choose a preaching topic, I generally lean uh, this way, back towards the Old Testament. For me, the Old Testament is like the best kind of treasure hunt. You know, the kind where there's loads of clues, some of them are quite simple and easy to follow, but others take a little bit more thinking through. But if you dig around in there for long enough, eventually you will see the sparkle um, of gold. You'll be able to find a seam and if you follow that seam through far enough, it will lead you to pure gold. I love the Old Testament because it speaks to us on so many levels. What we hear or what we find depends on how we listen or how we dig. And if you've ever been gold panning with young children, you'll know exactly what I mean. You take them down to the creek, they've got some equipment, they jump out of the car and race to the creek and begin shoveling the creek bed into their pans. They give it a few shakes, there's no nugget of gold in the pan and so they upend it, but unperturbed they start again, repeat the process a few times, a few more empty pans and they're ready to head back to the car, convinced that there's nothing of value in that creek. Sadly, that is how often we approach the Old Testament We jump in excited, we give it a bit of a cursory look and then we move on. To enter the Old Testament is to enter a foreign world. Its pages are filled with slavery and sacrifice and plagues and laws and sometimes some of those laws are very foreign or seem strange to us. There's kings, there's wars, there's prophets and miracles and promises and curses. And we approach it like the child who approaches gold panning. If something doesn't immediately appear from the pages for us, we so readily move on. Now, we all know the stories from the gold fields of the chance lucky finds Um, Like the family in Bendigo, just um, last year, Mother's Day 2019. Dad decides to give mum a bit of a break and takes the two kids and the dog for a walk. Dad's sort of on up ahead a bit. The kids are dragging behind. One of them's kicking at rocks. And she looks and picks up a rock and catches up to the father and says, Dad, do you think this is gold? Dad takes a look and goes, I think it might be. And so he packs the kids up in the car and heads down, as you do, to your local IGA store where he then earns the ire of the manager of the store by insisting on weighing his find using the deli scales. 624 grams of pure gold. Estimated value, $35,000. Not bad for a Mother's Day stroll. Now, we all know... Of these stories, but we also know that they're few and far between. Most people who find gold do so after much careful searching. And generally, those who find the most are those who are willing to put in the time and who dig the deepest, who construct shafts, who look for the seams and follow the seams, and invest their time and their energy to the task. Today's passage from Exodus chapter 2 is a case in point. You can give it a cursory read, and what you'll get is a nice Sunday school story about a baby pulled out of a river, raised in a palace, and fleeing into the wilderness. That's the first level upon which this story speaks, the Sunday school level. And Sunday school stories are great for Sunday school kids, just like milk is good for babies. But we all know that if you try and raise an adult on milk, you're going to have a very sick adult very quickly. Unfortunately, we're often happy to accept milk in our reading of the scriptures. Stay. Pause in the passage, dig around, look under the surface and pretty soon you'll see that this passage contains much, much more. In fact, there's a whole two other levels there that we're going to have a look at today. Now, in Sunday school, the focus tends to be on characters, particularly on heroic or faithful characters. And in the case of Exodus Chapter two If you had a particularly good Sunday school teacher, you would probably also learn something about the faithfulness of God to keeping his covenant promises. That's one way of approaching this passage. Now, incidentally, we often um, like to see ourselves as the main character. You know, we might be Moses' mother, and what can we learn from her? Or, or we're Moses, what can we learn from him? Generally, that's not the best way to approach these passages. Often we're more like the Israelites and we should be looking at how they responding in these situations. But if we stay a little while and if we're prepared to dig a little bit deeper here, pretty soon we'll see those seams of gold start to appear. Perhaps they're difficult to spot at first, but once you get your eye in, you might see some pointers here that are dead giveaways, that this is more than just a story about a loving mother who couldn't bear to drown her son in the river. This chapter has little nuggets buried right through it and they would have immediately been quite obvious to the people of the time. But we have to work a little bit harder to see them and to follow them through because we're not Hebrews And if we go even deeper still, there's more treasure to be uncovered here when we look at how this chapter points beyond itself to something far, far greater. And this is a theme that we're going to see repeated time and time again as we work our way through um, this series in the book of Exodus. I love the Old Testament. But within the Old Testament, as I've said to you before, Exodus is by far and away my favourite book because it is my firm opinion that if you get a good grasp on the book of Exodus, the rest of the Bible just makes so much more sense. For me, Exodus is like those edge pieces on a jigsaw puzzle. Once you get them locked into place, the rest of the picture takes shape very, very rapidly. But try and start from the middle without those edge pieces locked in and you'll find you've got a much more difficult task on your hands to see the picture forming. So if you've got your Bibles, let's jump right into Exodus chapter 2 and I hope you've had a chance to read through this chapter because as we move through, um, we'll be doing at least one chapter every week, sometimes multiple chapters, and it's not going to be possible to read out that volume each week. So it will be really helpful if you make sure you've read ahead of of where we're preaching. Now, Pastor Glenn provided us the context last week of, of this passage, and you might remember the book of Genesis closes with Joseph having sustained Egypt through years of famine living peacefully in Egypt with all of his extended family, all of the sons of Israel, right up until his death. And the book of Exodus opens with a new pharaoh in Egypt who knows nothing about the nation-saving exploits of this Hebrew Joseph. And this pharaoh is oppressing the Israelites. How can this be? You know, on this side of the page... Joseph and the Israelites are effectively the toast of all of Egypt. And on this side of the page, Israel is despised by all of Egypt. What the Bible doesn't make completely obvious is the details of what went on between here and here. And that period spans about 400 years. We flip from one page to the other and assume that they just follow immediately on. They don't. There's about 400 years in between. And this 400 years was a very unstable time in Egypt's history when the nation was ruled by a great many pharaohs and suffered much at the hands of foreigners in their midst. Joseph, in his 80-year term, served under only two pharaohs. It was a very stable time, an unusually stable time of peace and prosperity in Egypt. By contrast, there were more than 50 pharaohs in the 400 years between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And during this time, Asian Semites, who were the descendants of Noah's son Shem, invaded Egypt and for 150 years they oppressed The Egyptian people. Meanwhile, God's people were multiplying and becoming prosperous in Egypt, filling the land just as God had originally directed Adam and Eve to do way back in Genesis. And so it's here that we see God's promises beginning to be fulfilled um, to Abraham that he would be a great nation. And so it's unsurprising with this background of of foreign invasion and oppression and instability that Exodus opens with a new pharaoh who knows nothing of Joseph's service to Egypt, enslaving the growing Israelite population and pronouncing a death sentence on their baby boys, determined that no foreign power will ever have the opportunity to rule in Egypt again. Chapter 2 begins, of course, with a very familiar story that I'm sure many of you will know. Let me summarise it for you and see if you pick up on anything that perhaps you may not have noticed before. Chapter 2 begins with the story of an unnamed man marrying an unnamed woman, and they produce an unnamed child who is destined to be thrown into the Nile with all the other Hebrew baby boys by order of an unnamed pharaoh. Only as I think many of you would remember from Sunday school, his mother doesn't throw him in the Nile. Instead, she floats him on the Nile. His unnamed sister is watching and the unnamed pharaoh's unnamed daughter finds him and takes him back to the palace to be raised there as her son. Did you notice anything there? If you haven't done so already, take note. No one in this story, with the exception of Moses, is named. And even Moses doesn't get a name until the very end of the story, the last verse, verse 10. So what do you think is going on here? Did the writer of Exodus really have no idea who any of these people were? Or could this be our first little glimpse of gold? To catch our eye in chapter 2, make us pay attention and look toward the bigger nugget that this leads to. I believe there's a reason why no one in this story gets a name and that's because it's not their story. The point of this story is not to glorify Moses' mother for her love for her child nor to glorify Pharaoh's daughter for her compassion on this child. The story exists to glorify God. This is God's story, and he's the main character in it. He's not absent or distant, as perhaps Israel might have thought in their 400 years between Genesis and Exodus. He's heard the cries of his people groaning, and he's about to act on their behalf. This is the opening scene of something much bigger here. It's like the spotlight roams the stage and it focuses and comes to rest on God himself. And all of the other characters, even Moses, will stand behind him in the shadows because theirs are all only supporting roles. The writer of Exodus knew the names of all of these characters. Moses' parents are named in chapter 6 in verses 18 and 20. And for those like me that like this kind of detail, his father was Amram, which means exalted nation, and his mother was Jochebed, which means Yahweh is glory. So exalted nation and Yahweh is glory, they marry and they produce a child who would lead the exalted nation, out of slavery and bring glory to Yahweh. I love those kind of details. There's so many layers that you'll find in these Old Testament records. Little nuggets just waiting to be uncovered. Moses' sister is also named. She appears right throughout the Exodus account. She is Miriam. We are to make no mistake about it. Whilst Moses might become the central human figure in the book of Exodus, this is not his story. This is the story of God acting on behalf of his chosen people. Now, if the anonymity of every single human character in this story isn't enough to make you twig that God is about to do something big here, then look at how Moses is introduced in verse 2. Now, you can tell that this is a verse that our English translators have had trouble with because of the number of different translations we have for the Hebrew word that describes this baby Moses. The NIV and the ESV say, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. The New American Standard Bible, the New King James and the CSB, when she saw that he was beautiful. She hid him for three months. The New Living Translation, she saw that he was a special baby. King James Version, when she saw that he was a goodly child. Now on this particular occasion I tend to think that the King James Version is getting closest to the mark here. The trouble is no English reader today would have much idea about what a goodly child might be. Does it mean he was well-behaved or does it mean something else? Let me read to you a few examples of where this Hebrew word that is translated here as fine, beautiful, special and goodly has occurred before this passage in Exodus and see if we can get a bit of a better sense of what the writer is trying to convey here. Genesis 1, 3 to 4. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, And God saw that the light was good. Genesis 1:10. God called the dry ground and the gathered dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Genesis 1:12. The land produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. I could go on. There's plenty more examples in the Genesis account, but I think you get the gist of what I'm trying to say. So we'll leave it with just these last two. Genesis 1.31, the summary of all of his creative efforts. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Genesis 2.9 In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and of evil. Of course Moses was a fine child. What new mother doesn't think their child is a fine child? There's no need to record that here. It's superfluous information. Of course he was beautiful. Every mother looks at their child and thinks theirs is the most beautiful child in all the world. Perhaps the New Living Translation is getting a little bit closer with special, but the real sense of this word is good. And I don't think there's any coincidence in the fact that this is the word used to describe Moses. Just as God looked on all of his creation and saw that it was good, so here comes one who's being introduced in exactly the same way. It's another of those little sparkling flecks of gold pointing us towards a bigger nugget. We're meant to think back and connect this story with what's happened before. We're meant to recognise God here and to see that he's about to do something new again and what he does will be very good. And so perhaps if we're to admire Moses' mother for anything, It's not that she loved her child so much that she couldn't bear to kill him in the river because most mothers would be like that. We should recognise in her that she saw something special, something good, something godly. She saw God at work in him and she responded to that prompting with a plan in faith. Just in case you missed the sparkle of gold in the anonymity of every character in the story so far, and in case you missed the link back to creation and this new beginning in Moses, those little glittery flecks of gold are about to become a very definite scene that will lead us right through the book of Exodus. And if you want to follow it far enough, it will lead you right to a great, big, precious nugget. Jesus Christ. He is the main event in this unfolding story Only we just don't know it yet. So Moses is introduced using the language of creation and then he just kind of floats into the story. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch and then she placed the child, still unnamed, in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Those of us that went to Sunday school, we remember that bit. It's got all the makings of a great Sunday school story. But do you know what a floating papyrus basket coated with tar and pitch is called? Wait for it. It's called an ark. The Hebrew word for that papyrus basket is teba, It means ark, and it's only used in one other place in the entire Bible, and that is in relation to that other ark traveller, Noah. The impact of this single verse is completely lost on us in translation, but for the Jew reading this, the notion of Moses floating on the waters of death in an ark is like hitting a seam of gold. Their heart starts beating a little bit faster. The excitement and anticipation builds. God is about to do something really big here. In an ark, God saved the righteous Noah and his family from the judgment that he poured out on the rest of the world. And now here's another ark, and God is going to use this one too to save those he loves. Because, and here's a spoiler alert. The little baby grows up and he leads God's people out of Egypt while God pours out his judgment on the Egyptians. So this is going to be a story about salvation. So let's do a little recap here and see what we've got so far. We know this is going to be God's story. He's going to be the main player in it. He's about to do something big and like creation, it's got his fingerprints all over it because it is described as good. It's got something to do with the salvation of God's people. It involves a helpless baby born into a nation suffering under foreign rule. That helpless baby has a death sentence pronounced by an evil king hanging over his head, but he's going to survive and he'll grow up to save God's people. Is that ringing any bells for anyone? What we've reached here is the third level upon which we can read the Old Testament. And in my opinion, it's the best level of all. Level one is the detail. That's where you sort of have your blinkers on and you're focusing on the individual characters. There's nothing wrong with that. There's plenty that we can learn from the characters, from how they acted, from how Israel reacted to them. Is their reaction something we're supposed to emulate or is it being set up as a negative example? How did God deal with them? What were the consequences of of their own action in their their lives and in their families' lives? That's level one. Level two is sort of where you take the blinkers off a bit and you look around at the wider implications. How is this affecting the wider story of God's people? How is God at work in their midst? And then level three is probably the most fulfilling way to read the Old Testament. It's where you start to turn your head and and you look back and you look forward and you start to ask yourself, what does this remind me of or what is this pointing to? And as you do that, gradually the Bible starts to look less and less like a bunch of individual books all stuck together with very little connection, and it starts to look more and more like one cohesive story of God's redemptive plan. So we've dealt here with the opening scenes of Chapter 2, which are the opening scenes really of the Exodus story, but what a, what a great opening scene. So much in there on so many levels. And when my kids were home from school recently, homeschooling, the Little lees had to work on their writing, on their, their sizzling starts. And this first part of Exodus chapter 2, for my mind, is a classic sizzling start, if ever I saw one. But we're really going to have to fly through the rest of this chapter, because we've only done two and a half verses so far, and if we don't speed up a bit, we're going to be here well into the afternoon. So there's not going to be a lot of time to go into as much detail on all three levels as as what I would have liked, but we'll, we'll see how we go. But first, we're going to finish the rest of this part of the story because I don't want you to miss the end of this one. Sizzling start and, for my mind, hilarious ending. So mum floats the baby in the river among the reeds. Notice she didn't just put her baby in his little ark and watch him floating off on the current down the Nile where he might have randomly come to rest, right where Pharaoh's daughter happened to be bathing. Read verse 3. There's nothing random or coincidental in this account. This is what happens when faithful people respond to the prompting of God with a well-thought-out plan. She puts Moses in his little ark and sets him among the reeds in the part of the river which was right where Pharaoh's daughter regularly came to bathe. I don't believe that that was accidental or coincidental, nor was the fact that Miriam was positioned just at a distance where she was able to see what was happening and able to offer helpful suggestions to Pharaoh's daughter once the baby was discovered. Jochebed knew what she was doing when she placed the baby there, and if she didn't, Then God surely did. Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe. She sees the ark. She hears its little passenger crying. She feels sorry for the baby. Big sister steps in and helpfully suggests that perhaps since this is a Hebrew baby, she could go fetch a Hebrew woman to look after the Hebrew baby. Surprise, surprise, she fetches her mum. And get this, Pharaoh's daughter ends up paying mum to look after her own baby until such time as he is older, presumably until he was at least old enough to be weaned, but probably a little later, old enough for him to be aware of his Hebrew background. At this point, Pharaoh's daughter adopts the baby and calls him Moses because she drew him out of the water. Now, surely I'm not the only one who finds this account amusing. What exactly would that have looked like? Did Grandpa Pharaoh play hide-and-seek in the palace with little baby Moses? Pharaoh said, I'm going to wipe out these Hebrews by killing their little boys. And it seems to me that what God effectively said was, you think so, do you? How about you raise one of them? You feed him, you clothe him, you give him the best education that he can get in Egyptian religion and culture and governance and military, and then I'll use him to free my people. From Stephen's account of these events in Acts chapter 7 from verse 22 onwards, we learn that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was powerful in speech and in action. And given that Pharaoh had no sons, it is widely held that Moses was being groomed as an Egyptian prince. And yet in verse 20 we read that he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. From this we know that he was aware of his own heritage. He knew that he was a Hebrew and not an Egyptian. And while he was there, he saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian So he went to his defence and Stephen says he avenged him by killing the Egyptian. And verse 25 of the Acts account is the most telling of all. Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using them to rescue him, using him to rescue them, sorry, but they didn't realise it. Even at that point, some 40 years before God would appear to him in the burning bush, Moses had a sense of what his calling might be. He knew that God would use him to rescue Israel. But this was not to be God's timing, nor would it be God's way. Perhaps in the moment, his confidence in his own abilities got the better of him. Or perhaps Moses just wasn't ready yet for what God had in store. Sometimes we all need a good humbling to be made aware of our own weaknesses because it is in that place that we learn to depend on God instead of our own abilities and it is in that place that we become teachable and pliable in the hands of God. And humbling is certainly what Moses got 40 years of humbling to be precise. The Hebrew men, Didn't want him intervening in their arguments, and they made sure that he knew that they knew that he'd murdered an Egyptian. They didn't want him, and they certainly didn't rally round him as their leader, as perhaps he thought they might. And after killing an Egyptian, Moses certainly couldn't go back to the palace because now Pharaoh wanted him dead. And so he fled into the wilderness. 40 years in the wilderness, tending sheep, long enough to humble anyone. From the high life of the palace with a silver spoon in his mouth and the best education that money could buy behind him, being groomed for greatness, to the back blocks of nowhere, tending sheep for 40 years. Just how effective that humbling experience was, we shall see next week. In Moses' reaction, when God says, Moses, now, it's time to act now. D.L. Moody describes it like this. He says, Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was somebody. He spent his second 40 years learning he was nobody. And he spent his third 40 years discovering just what it is that God can do with a nobody. God can do amazing things with a humble nobody. The Bible is full of humble nobodies who did great things for God. So Moses flees for his life into the desert and settles in Midian, where once again he witnesses injustice and once again he takes action to intervene, this time rescuing seven daughters of a priest from some evil shepherds at a well. Now, on face value, this is the story of how Moses meets his wife, Zipporah. But dig a little deeper here because there's plenty going on. Can you think of anyone else in the Bible who met their wife at a well? This account closely parallels that of Jacob. Both Jacob and Moses flee for their lives to another country. Both of them meet their sheep herding wives at a well At the well, both of them assisted the young women to water their flocks. Both of them were taken home to the father of the woman and both eventually married the woman they met at the well. So here in this one chapter, we've seen Moses linked with creation. We've seen him linked with Noah. And now we see him linked with the patriarchs through this parallel with Jacob. What happened to Moses in Midian? Well, some would read these 12 verses that describe that time and say, not much. He got married and he had a son. But this was critical time in his life. This was time that God used to prepare Moses. It was here that he learned how to shepherd a flock. It was here that he learned how to survive in the wilderness. Can you imagine being taken out of palace life and left to survive on your own in the wilderness. It was here that he would have learned how to find water when water was scarce. And it was here that for 40 years, Moses was part of the household of a priest, one from whom Moses would learn about leadership and about the administration of justice, as well as receiving some form of additional religious instruction, although we're not quite sure at that time um, what, that would have entailed what what the Midianites actually believed at that time. These years, make no mistake about it, were not God's plan B for Moses when Moses messed up plan A. These years were part of plan A. They were an essential part of God's rescue plan for his people. So in just one short chapter, we've spanned 80 years of Moses' life. 40 years training as an Egyptian prince, 40 years of wilderness training. Both unlikely training grounds for leadership of the nation of Israel. About as unlikely probably as my 17 years of delivering training to audiences of weary vegetable farmers in pubs and clubs all over Australia. Who knew that that would be good training for preaching? I couldn't see it, but God was at work in my life preparing me for what he had for me down the track. Even when he seems distant or absent or when life takes an unexpected turn and you find yourself in whatever is your current equivalent of being stuck in the wilderness with a bunch of sheep and a Midianite priest for company, God is always at work and he can use whatever circumstances, for his glory. Our time is is almost gone. Just three verses remain. During that long period, Pharaoh died. But things didn't get any better for the Israelites. In fact, if anything, they got worse. Verse 23 says, The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out, And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. He heard, he remembered, he looked and he was concerned. And that last verb translated concerned is another one of those difficult-to-translate words. There isn't really an exact English equivalent for the Hebrew verb. And so different translations have used, he was concerned about them, God knew about them, God took notice, God acknowledged them, or God felt sorry for them. The verb yada means to know, but it's to know in a very personal and experiential kind of way. Our God is the same God of Israel. He sees us, he hears our groaning, but he doesn't stand aloof, unmoved by what he sees and hears. Our God feels and he enters into that which his people are experiencing. He enters into that which his people are experiencing. In my reading this past few weeks, I came across a story that literally brought a tear to my eye when I read it. And it's even more poignant today than when it was first told, given the protests that have occurred internationally in this past few weeks. The author of the book that I was reading was using the story to make the point that the more we mature as God's people, the more we should see as God sees through God's eyes and act as God acts. The story is told by Bishop Leontine Kelly. She was the first black woman to be elected as a bishop in the United Methodist Church. Bishop Kelly grew up the daughter of a Methodist preacher and when she was a young child, her father was assigned to a church in Cincinnati. Now, historically, this had been an all-white area and was an all-white church. But over time, the neighbourhood had changed and it had become a black congregation. The church was the most magnificent that she had ever seen. Gothic architecture, lots of polished wood fixtures and fittings and a massive crystal chandelier hanging from the roof. At one time, this had been a prestigious and very wealthy congregation. Next door to the church was a a church house. And that was where Bishop Kelly and her family lived at the time when she was a young child. And the house was equally as, as impressive as the church. It was the largest house she'd ever lived in. And one day when the children were exploring down in the cellar, Behind the furnace, they found a hole. And when they explored a little more, they noticed that the hole seemed to lead to a tunnel. And so they went and fetched their father and brought him down to have a look. And when he looked, their father became excited and he took them across to the church and insisted that they explore down in the cellar in the church. And sure enough, when they did, there behind the furnace, they found some boards And when they removed the boards, behind the boards, they found more tunnels. And that night, their father told them the story of the Underground Railroad, a metaphorical railroad without tracks and without trains, an underground network built to assist slaves escaping the US into Canada. Slaves that were caught trying to escape were brutally punished and it was illegal to assist them. But the members of the Underground Railway willingly accepted this personal risk to assist these slaves to reach freedom. Bishop Kelly says she will never forget her father's words that night and I don't think I'll forget them either. Children, he said, I want you to remember this day as long as you live. We have found today a station on the Underground Railroad. The greatness of this church is not in its Gothic structure, in its beautiful furniture or in its crystal chandelier. The greatness of this church is below us. We are on hallowed ground for these people, dead to risk their lives, to become involved and care about the poor, the frightened runaway slaves, and that was the mark of their greatness. There were people that saw what God saw and that acted as God would have acted. We had our first post-lockdown gathering here in the new church building this week. It was just a small group. But as we took them through the building and as they oohed and ahhed, as Pastor Bruce pointed out the finer points of each room, I couldn't get that story out of my head. That's the kind of church that I want Pathway to be, known not for the greatness of its building but for seeing as God sees, for knowing the pain of others in that intimate, experiential kind of way and for being moved. And for being moved to act on their behalf. So that's why I've tacked it on here as a a kind of postscript to this message. It is quite a chapter, Exodus chapter 2, the first 80 years of Moses' life and the opening scenes to God's redemptive plan. It is quite a chapter, Exodus chapter 2, the first 80 years of Moses' life and the opening scenes to God's redemptive plan. The final 40 years of Moses' life will take us a little bit longer, 38 chapters in all. I'm looking forward to it and I hope you are too. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we stand truly amazed at the depth and the richness of your word. It is active and alive and alive and it speaks to us on so many levels. Lord, we don't want to settle for just milk when there's a whole feast laid out before us. Help us to dig deep into your word. May your spirit bring insight and understanding, and may we daily find ourselves seeing what you see and acting as you would act. To you be all the glory and honour. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace. Amen.